Hello and welcome to the Deathcast, a place where the crazy cool kids come to learn about their true crime. I'm your host, author, and journalist Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our third look at the Gilgo Beach Slangs, also known as Long Island Serial Killer and the Lisk. Before we get going, a couple quick show notes. If you want to follow me on social media, just look for the Deathcast, Deathcast pod or any combination of that if you're enjoying what i do please consider going to buymeacoffee.com backslash deathcast and become a member of the coffee club if you enjoy what i do please consider going to your favorite podcast website and leaving a five-star review and lastly If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on this show, please go to BigPondPodcasts.com. You can contact my agent through there, and they can get the ball rolling as well as give you rates. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee. I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, we had been discussing Shannon Gilbert, the discovery of her body, as well as the death of her mother a few years later at the hands of her sister. And I'd like to take a quick moment and make a correction from last week. When we were discussing Shannon Gilbert, I stated that, to the best of my knowledge, there was no evidence to suggest that she had been strangled and a very devoted listener pointed out something to me that I had overlooked and that's that when her family had hired the forensic pathologist in 2014, this would be Dr. Michael Baden, to do another autopsy on Shannon, he found damage to her hyoid bone which is a bone in the neck. And according to this individual, this Dr. Baden, quote, there is insufficient information to determine a definitive cause of death, but the autopsy findings are consistent with homicidal strangulation. That being said, that does not definitively mean that Shannon died by strangulation. I still believe that she was death by misadventure, whether she was suffering from a form of psychosis brought on by something such as schizophrenia, or was in a drug-induced mania remains to be seen. It's doubtful we'll ever get definitive answers on that, but again, my opinion is she is not a victim of foul play. After the discovery of these bodies at Gilgo Beach, that includes the body of Shannon Gilbert, law enforcement as well as a lot of citizen detectives, I hate that term, you're either a detective or you're not, citizen detective is bullshit because private investigators are detectives and they are also citizens any rate, a lot of people started linking all of these cases together. But it wasn't just these cases. There were other cases that preceded these 
nine known fatalities that they eventually tried linking to these other cases, and I have a major problem with that for the simple reason that there's multiple M.O.s present in all of these crimes. And what I mean by that is simply, oftentimes you'll have a serial killer who will start killing in one fashion, and as time goes by, they escalate their crimes. It may start out as murder, and then dumping of the body, and then escalate to murder, and then sexual assault of the body, and then dumping of the body, and then escalate from murder to sexual assault of the body, and dismemberment of the body. We don't have that here. If we're to look at these cases as being all interconnected, we have a killer who starts at the end of the spectrum, so to speak, in that he's dismembering the bodies, but then he moves from dismemberment of the bodies to simply killing and dumping. And a lot of people have pointed out that he's doing this in an effort to try and throw people off of his trail. While it is true that you will get killers who will vary their M.O. once they've established a certain parameter of how they're going to commit their crimes, this is an extreme change in their M.O. And unless there is some evidence that has not been released to the public, such as the fact, like, this is a hypothetical, that this individual is keeping the pinky fingers from the left hand of every victim, the idea that this individual is this master criminal trying to hide their crimes, that's a Hollywood fallacy. It's a fantasy. People watch way too much television shows like CSI and The Silence of the Lambs, and they get this idea that serial killers are these extremely charismatic master criminals, super geniuses. That couldn't be farther from the truth. More often than not, serial killers are the dregs of society, oftentimes unable to maintain employment, loners, drifters. They suck at every aspect of their life except for when it comes to the commission of murder. They have this hyper sense built into them that lets them know, you know, this individual is vulnerable, now is a good time that I can strike, and this seems to help keep them from getting caught in the commission of a crime. That is almost always the extent of their super criminality. After the body is discovered of Shannon Gilbert, there really isn't a lot of movement on the case. In 2016, we have the body of Peaches being linked to that of Jane Doe number three, meaning that the two sets of remains are from the same person. In 2017, we get our first 
possible suspect in the case. That would be John Bitrolf. Bitrolf was born July 1st, 1966 in New York, and at the time of the good majority of these killings, he was living in Manorville, New York, which, if you'll recall, is where a few of the girls vanished from and or were discovered. Bitrolf was married and had two children, and he worked as a carpenter. In 2013, police made a partial DNA match on two bodies that had been found in the early 1990s. This partial DNA matched that of his brother, Timothy Bitrolf, who submitted his DNA for testing, at which point it was found that well, he was a partial match, he wasn't an entire match, so the police began looking into it, it further. Now, what this DNA actually was, apparently they found wood chips at the scene of both crimes that had this partial DNA match. And the police began looking into Timothy Bittenrolf's family, they noticed that his brother, John, had multiple convictions for grand larceny as well as assault, so they ended up getting a DNA sample from him, at which point it was found that Bittenwolf was, in fact, responsible for these two murders. So what were these two crimes? This report comes from the citizen out of Auburn, New York, Wednesday, July 23rd, 2014. Suffolk County Police said the nude bodies of 31-year-old Rita Tangretti and 20-year-old Colleen McNamee were found within three months of each other in wooded areas of East Patchogue and Shirley in late 1993 and early 1994. Spoda said both women had been strangled and suffered severe blunt force injuries to their heads. Each was known to have worked as prostitutes, and the killer in both cases kept a unique piece of clothing, which the prosecutor declined to identify. Spoda said both women were posed in the same manner. He also said authorities were investigating whether Bitrolf may have been responsible for the death of a third woman, 28-year-old Sandra Castilla, whose body was found in a similar state to those of Trangetti and McNamee. Castilla was found in the North Sea community of Southampton in December 1993. Bitrolf is not charged in the Castilla case. So here we have a guy who has two prostitutes he savagely assaults them some reports i've read state that he sexually assaulted them as well although i cannot confirm that he ties them up he brings them out into the woods he kills them or he kills them elsewhere and then brings their bodies out into the woods and then he poses their bodies in a sexually explicit manner and he's also implicated in these other murders now why people don't believe bit could be the 
Long Island serial killer. I'm really not certain. I suspect it's because he's too plain Jane and there's not that air of excitement. However, it would fit with what we know of the victims in that they worked as sex workers. They were all relatively small in stature and found in wooded areas. Now, some people are going to point out, yes, but the MO, the modus operandi, is different. Yes, but if we follow the modus operandi to its fullest, there is a possibility that he killed in this one particular manner, the beating death, the strangulation, the tying up, the sexually explicit posing of the bodies in wooded areas, and then escalated from there to the dismemberment of the victims and the scattering of the bodies over large areas. And I say that because we really don't know, because of the conditions the bodies were in, whether or not the bodies which were found on Gilgo Beach had in fact originally been posed. There is a possibility of that. We simply don't know, again, because of the conditions that the bodies were in when they were discovered. And it's not too far a jump to state that, let's assume for the briefest of moments, Bitrolf is in fact guilty of all of these crimes, that he switched up his M.O. in terms of cutting the bodies up in an effort to hide his connection to the other crimes, but also because mentally that's where his escalation took him to because he does not see women as being human or at least prostitutes, and in fact he has an extreme hatred for them. That would explain the severe escalation of the crimes over the years if he went from committing crimes one way to committing them and then escalating that further degradation of the victim's remains. Unfortunately, as I stated, though, we really don't know what condition the remains were in of these other women when they were found insofar as were they posed. We don't know if there was severe blunt force trauma because A, they haven't really released that information, but two, these bodies when they were found were skeletal remains. So it's not like they can look at the brain and see if there was trauma inflicted upon it, or at the skin to see if there was trauma inflicted upon it. So in my personal opinion, Bitrolf is a good suspect for at least having committed some of the Lisk murders. A couple of things that link Bitrolf possibly to this is that he was an avid hunter who was said to have enjoyed killing animals, but he was also said to possess power tools and saws. Some sites state that the bodies which were found to have been dismembered were dismembered with a precision that the average individual would not possess. I question that in that I have not seen anything stating that the bodies were cut with, you know, exceptional precision above and beyond the manner that a regular individual would be capable of. There's a lot of hunters out there 
just because this individual was a hunter, had access to saws, and knew how to dismember an animal does not mean he necessarily knew how to dismember a human body with quote-unquote exceptional precision. While that's worth noting that he had this ability, I do think that without full knowledge of the manner that these bodies were dismembered, I think it's a stretch to state that they were dismembered with this, you know, supposed precision. It is worth noting, though, that Bittenhoff lived a few miles from where the bodies of two of the victims were found, and it's also been stated that Rita Tangretti's grown daughter was friends with Melissa Barthelmy, who has been linked as a possible Gilgo Beach slaying victim. And Barthelmy's mother has stated that prior to her daughter's death, she had a lot of calls from the Manorville area, which as I've already stated, is where Bittenrolf lived. So that's a possible connection. I don't believe that the fact that the daughter of a murdered sex worker was friends with another murdered sex worker really plays into this case. Again, that's a bit of a stretch with a Hollywood twist on it that this individual would be targeting the friends of one of his victims. More likely than not, the fact that these individuals knew one another is simply a coincidence. Now for other cases that have been unofficially linked to the LISC. These come from a variety of websites, and I'm only including them in an effort to be as complete as possible. Shortly before Thanksgiving of 2002, Andre Jamal Isaac, who was a professional drag queen, disappeared from East New York after telling a friend that he was going to meet with a special friend. On December 17th of 2002, a plastic bag containing a partial human torso was found in Averney, New York. Also inside of this bag was a skirt, a black bodysuit, and a tank top. For those interested in looking into these particular cases further, you can go to gilgocase.com. That is where I am calling this information from. A short time later, on January 25th of 2003, a severed head was discovered on the shores of a frozen lake in Moriches. This head was found by ice skaters. There was a single bullet wound in the head, and over a year later, on April 10th of 2004, a landscaper discovered a plastic bag in Moriches, which had arms and legs inside of it. And eventually, all of these remains would be linked as belonging to Andre Isaac. Personally, I think it's extremely doubtful that 
this particular victim is linked to the Gilgo Beach slayings specifically because of the manner of death, or suspected manner of death, I should say, and no information that the police have released indicates that a gun was used in the commission of the crime. Another possible link is that of Jacqueline Ashley Smith, who was last seen August 7th of 1999. Jacqueline lived in Brooklyn and had left her home to go visit with friends. She was reported missing on August 12th, 1999. On June 20th of 2000, a female torso was found near Beach 88th Street in Rockaway Beach, Queens, New York. The body was inside of plastic bags which had been wrapped with tape. From what I can discover, her body was eventually identified using DNA. It is interesting to note that Jacqueline and Isaac's bodies were found one and a half miles apart. This could possibly be the work of the same killer in that both bodies were extremely dismembered. Unfortunately, we do not know where the rest of Jacqueline's remains are, so a manner of death, it's not possible to list whether or not she was shot, but it is highly suspicious that you have two people in, you know, one and a half miles separating where the remains are found, who are both found dismembered inside of plastic bags. On March 3rd of 2007, a suitcase was found at Harbor Island Park in Mamaroneck, New York. Inside of this suitcase, the torso of a light-skinned African-American or Hispanic woman was found. It was noted that there was a stab wound to the torso, however, no legs were discovered at that time. Also of note is that a tattoo was discovered on the body of a pair of peaches. On March 21st, 2007, one of this victim's legs, who this victim, by the way, has become known as Cherries, washed up on the shore at Cold Spring Harbor. The other leg washed up at Oyster Bay in the village of Coveneck on March 22nd. On June 23, 2008, Tanya Rush, an African-American woman, was last seen leaving her apartment building in the Van Dykes houses in Brooklyn. Tanya was picked up by surveillance cameras on Livonia Avenue walking towards the nearby subway station. Police have stated that Tanya was, in fact, a sex worker. After she went missing, Tanya's daughter attempted to file a missing persons report, although it's been stated that the police did not believe her until June 27, 2008, 
when a body was discovered inside of a black canvas suitcase. This was in Belmore, on the side of the Southern State Parkway's westbound side near the New Bridge Road ramp. Police stated, quote, it was a particularly brutal murder. There was a lot of rage in this. On January 21st, 2013, the skeletal remains of a woman were discovered inside of a garbage bag in Laddington. According to GilgoCase.com, the bag was, quote, buried in a small piece of brush in a sandy area along the shore at the end of Sheep Lane. The victim is thought to have been Asian and between the ages of 20 to 50 years old. Also found inside the bag was a black bra and a pair of jeans. We will get back to this case in just a moment. Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway is the first and most detailed account of the gay porn murder that shocked a nation. Cobra Killer, featured on NBC's Snapped Killer Couples, pulls back the glitzy veil of the gay porn industry to expose a story of deceit, greed, and the ultimate betrayal. Cobra Killer, gay porn, murder, and the manhunt to bring the killers to justice, tells the story of online gay porn entrepreneur Brian Kosis, whose brutal near-decapitation on a Wednesday in early 2007 sent shockwaves through the small Pennsylvania town where he ran his porn empire. The basis for the Christian Slater film King Cobra, Cobra Killer has been called an addictive page-turner that you won't want to put down by the San Diego LGBT Weekly and a grisly, gripping documentary account of the 2007 murder by Passport Magazine. Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway. Available on Amazon in paperback and ebook or at bookstores nationwide. We are back. Now, according to police, there was significant trauma evident on the bones of this particular victim. It was also noted by officers that a 24 karat gold pig pendant was found with this body. This next one is a bit of a stretch. On February 1st, 1982, Tina Elizabeth Foglia hitchhiked to a concert venue known as the Hammerlands in West Islip, New York, where a friend of hers was playing in a band. On February 3rd, Tina's body was discovered by Department of Transportation workers on the shoulder of the Southern State Parkway. It was noted that her body had been dismembered and placed inside of three different garbage bags and that a diamond ring which Tina was known to wear was missing. Now, according to police, the DNA of an unidentified male was found on these bags. And it's worth noting, just for the sake of completeness, that Tina's sister stated that she worked as a home health care aide and was recently in, involved in a relationship with an unknown doctor. 
one website I found stated that there's a possibility that this particular doctor was, in fact, Dr. Peter Hackett, which, if that were the case, would be highly suspicious given that roughly 29 years later, another woman who was in the his vicinity disappeared and was later found dead. Can't say for certain, however, police have stated that Hackett is one of those individuals who simply likes to insinuate himself into cases. My personal opinion, though, is I highly suspicious that he insinuated himself into this particular case, especially when you look at the fact that he called Shannon's mother and then lied about it and then tried to play it off to local news media that he couldn't remember whether or not he'd actually made the phone calls. That whole particular situation is extremely odd, at least to me. How would he have known the young girl's name, at least from everything I have seen, when he's known to have made these phone calls? Shannon Gilbert's name was not known among the general population of the Ocean Beach estates. And the only way he could have gotten Shannon's name was if he had encountered her in some form or fashion, unless, of course, one of his neighbors who encountered her knew her name and passed it along to him. But again, we only know one person that actually knew her name. At least her first name. We don't know if that individual knew her last name. So all of that activity is extremely suspicious. Connecting the 1982 murder to the murders that took place in the 1990s and the 2000s, in order to fit the age range that the police have given us between mid-twenties to mid-forties, the killer would have had to have been in their mid to late twenties in 1982 which would then put him in that later age range at the time of the other crimes. That is highly possible, but unfortunately we just don't have the evidence to definitively state that's the case. Obviously, if we put the killer in the lower age range, for the later crimes, it's not possible that they could have committed the crime that took place in 1982. And let's be honest here, dismembering a victim and placing their body inside of trash bags is not the most unique way of getting rid of a victim's body. If you really look into true crime, you see this kind of activity over and over again. So what I think we have here is two separate serial killers operating in the Gilgo Beach area. 
one of whom's M.O. was to dismember the bodies and the other whose M.O. was to simply kill the victims and get rid of the bodies. The other crimes, particularly the ones that took place in Brooklyn, that's a little harder to tie them in to the Gilgo Beach slangs because we do have the difference in that those bodies were placed inside of suitcases some people say, well, that could be the work of the same killer in that one. That's a possibility, but it's also possible that someone saw the report on the body being discovered, that body, by the way, being that of Tina, inside of the suitcase, and when they decided to remove Andre Isaac, they recalled that story and said that's a pretty good idea. I do want to point out, though, that Bodies being discovered inside of suitcases, particularly dismembered bodies, is not that uncommon an occurrence in and around New York City, particularly during the time period that we're looking at. Bodies are constantly being found inside suitcases, inside of boxes, floating in rivers and trash bags, dismembered. But I'm not going to rule out the fact that Tina and Isaac's murders were linked in some way, shape, or form. I'm just pointing out the fact that a lot of crime happens in New York City and a lot of people are found dismembered inside various means of conveyance. According to an article originally published by the New York Times and then put out in other newspapers, this is the profile of the individual that they are looking for. Quote, he is most likely a white male in his mid-twenties to mid-forties. He is married or has a girlfriend. He is well-educated and well-spoken. He is financially secure, has a job, and owns an expensive car or truck. He may have sought treatment at a hospital for poison ivy infection. As part of his job or interests, he has access to or a stockpile of burlap sacks. And he lives or used to live on or near Ocean Parkway on the south shore of Long Island, where the police have found as many as ten sets of human remains. Further in the article, they discuss that it's very probable that this individual had an intimate knowledge of the area where the bodies on Gilgo Beach were discovered, but they also state, quote, "...the summertime disappearances suggest several characteristics." There may be a seasonal nature to his connection to the area or to his fantasy and ritual. It may be the time his wife or kids or parents are away for the summer. There are many possibilities. On the burlap sacks, the article states, The burlap sacks provide yet another clue. He could be using the sacks either because they are part of his killing ritual or because they are the easiest cover he can find, but burlap is no longer a common material and it might be easier to trace than a plastic bag. To me, it takes away from his forensic sophistication and criminal sophistication and adds to the possibility that he is more interested in his, this ritual aspect. And again, that article originally appeared in the... New York Times on Friday, April 22nd, 2011, was written by Mandy Fernandez and Al Baker. So there we have the profile, or at least a partial profile, of the individual that 
the FBI and other experts in criminology believe is responsible for these crimes. This last bit is simply to, again, cover all bases. There are a lot of people who believe, unfortunately, that the Long Island serial killer case has, in fact, been covered up by law enforcement, specifically the Suffolk County Police Department. They base this on a number of reasons. Long Island police have an extremely long history of corruption. That's not speculation, that is factual. You can look it up if you are so inclined. I'm not going to get into specifics of it. These same individuals who believe that the Suffolk County Police Department are involved also posit that it's not one serial killer who is operating out there, but in fact it's a group of individuals who are killing these women either singularly or in tandem with one another and that they are all covering up for one another. There is no evidence of this at all. It is only speculation on the part of these individuals that we have this killer cult, if you will, out there killing these young women. This isn't a case like the Son of Sam where someone was able to find definitive evidence that, well, the cult may not have been involved in the actual planning and perpetration of the murders. They did, in fact, exist, and there's enough evidence out there to suggest that they may have, in fact, been responsible for these crimes, so much so that members of law enforcement actively reopen the investigation to look into that possibility. We don't have that here with the Go-Go Beach slayings. Another aspect to this entire the police are covering things up story is that the police chief at the time of the main investigation into the Lisk killings, James Burke, blocked the FBI from being involved in this particular series of cases because Burke was himself being investigated by the FBI for having assaulted a man in 2012. According to a report by the New York Post, James Burke, quote, refused to keep the feds in the loop on the unsolved murders of eight women, a man and a toddler, on or near the beach, a source said. Before I get into my issue with those particular statements, I'm going to go over what Burke was under investigation for. A man had stolen a duffel bag from James Burke's police vehicle. Inside of this bag, there were sex toys, pornography, snuff, which is dip, and Viagra. When this man was taken into custody, Burke assaulted the man and then used the district attorney for Suffolk County at that period of time, Thomas Spoda, 
and Christopher McPartland, who was an anti-corruption prosecutor in Suffolk County, to help him cover up his crimes. So Burke was being investigated by the FBI for this, and supposedly because of this, he decided to block the FBI for participating in the investigation of the Lisk murders. Here's my take on that. The FBI cannot come into a local jurisdiction and with a case like this where there is no proof that individuals were transported over state lines and for the purpose of sexual exploitation and or murder and take that case over. In fact, one of the parties has to reach out to the other for the FBI to get involved. That could be the local police realize that they're in over their head. They reach out to the FBI to get guidance, or the FBI reaches out to that jurisdiction and states, hey, we think we might be able to give you some help with this, giving you guidance should you want it. The uh, You know, we're opening that up to you. The local jurisdiction does not have to accept that guidance from the FBI and, in fact, can tell them to F.O. So, unfortunately for those who like this idea that Burke was actively attempting to cover up these crimes by keeping the FBI out of it, the reality is the FBI legally had no standing in the case if Suffolk County decided they did not want their help in looking into these cases. I'm sorry, but that's the way reality works. It's not like television shows where the FBI can swoop in and assume command of a case just because they don't believe the local police are capable of dealing with the crimes that they're looking into. There is a further twist to the James Burke story, however. In December of 2016, a lawyer who was representing Shannon Gilbert's family stated that an escort who he had been in contact with informed him that she believed Burke might be connected to the Lisk murders. This escort further went on to state that she attended a party in April of 2011 in Oak Beach that Burke was in attendance of. This escort stated that she saw Burke drag an Asian woman's by her hair to the ground. This woman further went on to state that at a, another party in August of 2011, Burke was again in attendance and she decided to engage in sexual activity with him, which the woman described as extremely rough. This woman further went on to state that at both of these parties she saw Burke engage in the use of cocaine. And the, here's the one thing I have a problem with in regards to this woman's story. She states that at the time she engaged in sex with Burke, she was not actively working as a sex worker, and that Burke was, in fact, the first customer of that nature she had ever had. I have two questions that I think are pretty pertinent 
about this woman who goes by the pseudonym Leanne. One, if she was not actively working at a as a prostitute, what was she doing at these parties? Meaning, how did she get there? Who invited her? Why did they invite her? And secondly, what made her at this second party decide that she should move into the line of being a sex worker if she was not one to begin with. Some reports I've read state that the woman was working as an escort at the time. The idea that an escort would go to a party like this and not engage in sex work is unfortunately statistically unlikely. The majority of women who work at escorts are in fact sex workers, which is why they charge the rates that they charge. And until we have answers to those questions, I have to state that this woman's statement is highly dubious. It's more likely than not that seeing what was going on with these cases, she decided to insert herself in them, probably looking for a payday of some type. The last person of interest we're going to look at is an individual by the name of James Bissett. Bissett owned a nursery as well as a company that was the region's largest supplier of burlap. That coupled with the fact that Bissett committed suicide two days after Shannon Gilbert's body was discovered at least from what I could find, are the only two reasons that his name has been brought up in connection with the Long Island serial killer. So the fact that this guy owned a business that made and supplied burlap and that he committed suicide is why he's on the list of potential persons of interest Again, without any further evidence about him and knowing more about his personal life, I can't put him on the list of potential suspects for the list because it's simply speculation based on the most flimsy of evidence. So far, of all the people that have been named as persons of interest in the Long Island serial killer crimes, John Bitrolf is the only one who has been convicted of murder, lived in the area where two of the victims who have been linked to the list were picked up and or their remains discovered. And from what we know since his arrest and incarceration, 50 years to life in prison, there have been no further murders committed that are linked to these other crimes. John Bitrolf is looking to me like our most likely suspect for having committed the Long Island serial killers. That's not to say that he committed all of them, but I'm feeling very strongly that he is responsible for a good number of them, at least based on the information that is available to us at this period of time. Also believe that some of these other crimes that are not 
in my opinion, tied into the Long Island serial killer, are more likely than not a crimes of circumstance and or crimes of passion, such as Tina Foglia. I don't think that she's a victim in this particular series of crimes nor do I believe that the Brooklyn murders are tied into these other ones. Again, that's just my opinion. If you have thoughts on this case, you'd like to share them with me, you can email me at ian at corpsecreekpublishing.com. I'd love to hear your take on things and any other information that I didn't cover that you think is pertinent to this case. All right. We are wrapping up the series on the Gilgo Beach Slangs, also known as the Long Island Serial Killer Case. Thank you guys so much for joining with me. Again, if you want to follow me on social media, just search for the Deathcast, Deathcast, or Deathcast Pod. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.